one of the biggest ad campaigns of all time, think different. I would just say think bigger and don't be dogmatic about how things get done because we're human. We bring our past experiences with us, our past biases, and it can kind of shield you from seeing the reality in front of you of what a situation needs. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Hey folks, today I have Scott Harp from Chunky. He's a co-founder over there. Welcome to the show, Scott. What's up, Phil? Good to be here. So first question, Scott, could you tell me a little bit about your background and how you guys come up with the idea to build Chunky? Yeah, so I spent probably 15 years in startups and most of that was with consumer VC batch companies. I was part of the first acquisition for the TinderMade back in uh, 2015, I think it was. 2016. It's all getting hazy now. So I jumped into subscriptions pretty soon thereafter, and I helped build Tinder's first subscription business. I designed the super like, by the way. So if anyone out there has used that, either you're welcome or I'm sorry, depending on how it turned out. (laughs) What's funny is actually, quick side note, Rob Moore, one of our co-founders and CTO, he actually met his wife using super like. So we didn't even know each other uh, then. So that was that's a nice side effect. Yeah, so I <clears throat> I was at Tinder. I helped build their first uh, subscription products. And then I moved to crypto, of all things. And I helped build uh, the first personal key security product where you could secure your own Bitcoin using um, a multi-sig setup. This is pretty common now, but we kind of created the category and created the subscription model there. And then um, I joined up with our, my current team, Nick and Rob, who I mentioned before, and we started Chernkey. And Nick, uh, I had known at Casa and had a very successful side business turned full-time business called Wave. And Churn was just destroying them. They were 11, 12, up maybe, maybe up to 14% Churn. And they were hiring consultants. They were trying everything they could to, to fix it. And we sort of were talking about this problem and I go, hey, I, I just tried to cancel my Audible account. And I saw this really interesting experience where they encourage you not to cancel by saying, here's some free credits. And he goes, whoa, dude, I saw the same thing over at Hulu. I just tried to cancel my Hulu account. And the key word there is try because in both experiences, I think more so on Amazon side, uh, an audible side, there were, let's say, less than savory tactics to to get you to press the wrong button at, at the right time to get you to stay. And we compared that to Hulu's experience, which was very straightforward, very clean, and you know something that's completely reasonable and customer centric. And we go, man, let's let's do a little side project and try this out and see if it works for Wave. And it reduced churn down to eight percent. And customers were staying longer. They were on better pricing plans. They were, and this is a seasonal product. So pauses were, were very popular. 
And so we go, hey, this could be a business. Uh, you know, kind of taking the fire from the big tech companies and bringing it down to, you know, SMBs and and um, other subscription companies. And so that's how we started out. We started out building an internal tool and testing it in the wild and then you know going from there. Let's talk about that, a little bit more about the data. What are some things that you feel like SaaS founders could start doing right now to reduce their churn into fire churn? Uh, yeah, the easy one is failed payments are up, involuntary churn is up. And um, that's something, so we've, we've since moved past voluntary churn and we, and we do this as well. And what we're seeing is that there's a lot of insufficient funds going on. There's a lot of bank declines happening for reasons related to income or, or, or whatever. And so I would get a dunning solution in place. And it's always this awkward topic, right? Where you assume the person wants to say subscribed, but it's like, hey, we we didn't get your payment for two months. Let's ease into this. Let's tiptoe into this. So that's step one. That is probably 20 to 40% of your churn based upon your category and your and your target customer. Then whether or not you do an actual cancel flow, I would start to ask why people are canceling at the point of cancellation. And this survey needs to be well-crafted and thoughtful. We're finding that there are certain catch-all survey responses that people will will just use to, and it'll throw off your data. And so, you know, think through those survey options, make sure they're very discreet and, and meaningful. And, you know, if you're using Stripe Connect, for example, you can turn that on right away. That That's included out of the box there. And then I would start to think about, well, how do you move further down that funnel? I would, I would explore a cancel flow. And then on the product side and the customer success side, I start to work in some cycles where you review as a team why people are leaving and iterate over that, make a part of your routine, and I think overcome the stigma of we can't look at this information because it's too painful or it's not useful because they were mad and they canceled. Well, people aren't mad when they cancel. We get great feedback from people when they cancel. They don't just don't need it anymore, and it's it served the purpose, and they've been testimonials in certain cases. So I destigmatize the notion that that data can't be helpful because it's uh, biased, and um, I think you'll you'll make some great gains. That, those are, are great advice, especially like the last one. Sometimes when you don't want to deal with a problem, we just ignore it, <laughs> right? Like I don't want to deal with that, and so like just start talking about churn and start to understand. You gave some very tactical things, like make sure you have something in place. So if their credit card it's not approved, they don't have funds, you have a way to to mitigate that. But like the last advice that you gave was more like strategy. Like what is the strategy behind understand churn? And I think that's, that's a big deal. So how do you guys fund the build of your product? Talk me to the process of like building the first version of your product. Uh, how long did that take? And maybe let's go deep into a couple product decisions because there's always prioritizing such a big, big deal and it's super hard because there's like always more to do than what we can do. Yeah, so I, I, I led the, the design of that first version and I still lead design. And so it's fun to, to jump back through Figma. It's like a time capsule of my thinking at the time. And I'd say the first principle is is just go out with what you know. And because every little decision you make, every tiny detail adds up to something bigger. 
So you're juggling all these details and edge cases and possibilities. Just go out with what you know has worked. And when we knew, knew what worked because we launched it internally. And we had the decision too, should we go out with Stripe plus Chargebee plus Braintree plus XYZ integrations? Well, we knew Stripe really well. We knew the nuances of the API. Let's just box that in. We'll get to the other integrations later. Does that limit the initial market? Yes, but the whole point was to see if it could exist outside of ourselves, right? Outside of our company. Also too, I mean, I, I tend to get caught up on branding and colors and all that jazz. And and honestly, being from, this is my first really true B2B SaaS product I've ever built. And you know, I come from consumer. So branding and the animations and the transitions and all the UI states really mean a lot to me. And while I don't want to make, you know, an absolutely boring, dead feeling product, I had to limit myself a bit to say, okay, the typography, the line heights here aren't going to matter as much as, you know, it did at Tinder, for example, or at Casa. And really, all someone wants is for your product to fulfill its promise, do its job, and then they'll be happy. And then everything else is gravy, right? So if you're not doing the, the primary promise or job, then what's the point of existing? So that's one thing I had to reel into is just, all right, man, like back off on the typography, all right? So what's the difference of team size? What's the team that you have now? And what the kind of team like uh, a B2C company like Tinder have? Yeah, we're all pretty um, multifaceted, multi-hyphenates in the, in the great tradition of living in Los Angeles. Everyone is a film director, actor, writer, you know? And so with us, we're, we're able to, I don't know, we're, we're full stack everything, each of us in the sense of, I do product design, marketing, copywriting. Rob does engineering direction, AI, machine learning, neural networks, all these crazy models, visualizations. Nick is, he's actually an attorney, which is nice. And so he's, he's, you know, an operator, an attorney and, and, uh, you know, running sales and, and outbounds and customer success. So maybe it's just the nature of being on a relatively bootstrap team where we don't have the luxury of, okay, there's the product department, there's the marketing department. It's all of us combined. The interesting thing about Tinder was as I joined at, at number 30, and over the course of being there for about a couple of years, I saw it scale up to, I think, 250 or something. And so you just see the bifurcation and the separation of all these disciplines. And I remember at one point being asked to choose between being a product manager and a lead designer. And I just couldn't really figure out how to answer that question because I do both and they're both intertwined. And it's like asking me to separate my personality into bits, you know, I'm not a horcrux here. Right. And so that was just really interesting to see the specialization of all these teams. And if you got the income and the money to do it, then, you know, that's one model you can, you can pursue. And it's a pretty, I think, traditional Silicon Valley-esque model, but it works. So, yeah. Yeah, what, what I like, the way that I see is like, when you're building a B2B SaaS, you're going to have a much smaller team. Your team is going to have to be more well-versed in different things like you're talking about. And you're going to have to ve get very good at doing the 80-20 rule. What are the 20% of the things that I can do that I'm going to get 80% of the impact? And 
one mistake that I see, and that's why I ask you to like kind of compare, uh, and I would love to hear your opinion on that. But one mistake that I see that B2B founders, they look at companies like Tinder, Twitter, like B2C companies, and they feel like, oh, those are best practices. That's what I have to do. If you try to replicate that in a smaller B2B SaaS, you're going to fail because you're going to move slower. You're not going to be able to actually get anything done. That's my personal opinion. Like you can't look at best practices from Tinder to build a B2B SaaS product. What's your take on that? Am I, do you agree? Do you disagree? No, I completely agree. I, I think as a, as a general rule, I think you could peel off some, some learnings from say, a sales org at Google, maybe where they're they're talking to enterprise companies and trying to sell them Google Workspace. I think is what it's called now. But on the flip side, they're operating at a scale that is basically completely unknowable to you unless you've been inside it. And you can inter- interview ex employees or or whatever, but I think you just need to to figure out how to get to your customers as quickly as possible. And it's not going to be scalable at first. You know, our, our early sales efforts were, and still are for the most part, extremely founder-driven. So at some point, that's going to have to change. But we're learning so much every single day. We're documenting all these things. We're applying, you know, a lesson from over here to this customer over here, and we're, we're getting faster and faster. And so if you try and go out and build this, I don't know, monolithic team that's modeled after some nebulous concept of success. I don't know. I, I, it's similar to um, when I was building mobile apps pre-Tinder. We would, we would all be trying to figure out how to, I don't know, build a camera app or something. And someone would say, well, you know, Snapchat does this. Like, why can't we do that? And it's like, well, Snapchat has raised $250 million or whatever at the time and has, a, has jillions of team members. And, you know, you have no idea. It's also looking at the end result. You don't know the journey they took to get there. And so if they make it look easy, it's probably because it, it was really, really hard to figure out. And so I kind of think of it in the same way, a little learning from design, you know, and, and figure, you know, you have to go through the process and figure out what not to do, take the wins and then go in them and build something of your own. And so... Yeah, that's what I bake it down to. You got to build it, build it your own, build it your own way. So you talk about being efficient and being quick. How long did it take you guys to build version one of your product? The internal product took, I think, a few weeks. And then to take that and polish it up enough for other people to use, took maybe two to three more months. And that was after initial data coming in. I mean, we were literally just pinging the database directly in real time and seeing, is it going to work? <laughs> Did retention go up? Did is churn going down? So yeah, it was, it was fairly efficient because we all were fortunate. Our skills bleed into each other's territories and then kind of, kind of falls off. So we each trust each other to get our own piece of the product done. And so, you know, we're kind of just passing the baton and, you know, round robin over time. And, and nowadays, how how quick is your cycle time? Like, so how often do you guys have like new releases and are improving the product for your customers? Yeah, we're pretty quick. We have major releases every month, but within that, we're we're rolling stuff out on a weekly basis. I look back; we have a launch log on our in our docs, and I look back at that, and I just go, 
man, this is the passage of time on paper. It's just crazy to see this. It's like my kids growing up. You can't believe how far you've come, you know? So, you know, it, I'm not necessarily saying that like that's healthy. Maybe, maybe we need to slow down a bit because, you know, burnout and all that lack of sleep and things, but we're pretty quick and we try to be, we have a lot of customers who rely on us for product feedback and, and, you know, getting valuations for, for fundraises and, you know, communicating with customers and working out issues with them. And so we'll have them in our, in our Slack and we try to be pretty responsive if something looks off or, you know, we're not, something isn't performing as it should be. So it's always a balancing act. And how many people are in your team right now total? We have four full-time and about half a dozen contractors kind of spread throughout the world. That's cool. It's amazing how much you guys can do with such a small team based on like being nimble and the strategy that you guys have in place. What is the first oh shit moment that comes to mind from the early days of building your product? That's a good one. Two things come to mind initially. The first is that, oh, this actually worked. And I was skeptical of it. I But I also thought Hulu and Amazon and Disney Plus, you know, and it's, it tends to be a lot of um, streaming apps who offer this, but Amazon Prime, Audible, if these massive companies are doing it, there's something going on. And whether or not you agree, agree with their tactics. So my next challenge to, to work through and to look at was, does it only work at like massive scale, right? And obviously they're pumping through millions of customers through these flows every month. Maybe it only works at that scale, but I proved myself wrong there too. And then the next bit would be, oh, we need, this is working so well, we, we need to have some more ambition. And wow, we've learned a ton about voluntary churn. Why don't we go and do the same for the other side and apply what we know from voluntary principles the other way, realizing, oh yeah, we could, we could do this too. You know, it's just study up on what you don't know, bring in the, the learnings from cancel flows and make Dunning awesome again. Not to, I shouldn't have paraphrased MAGA, but we thought that the Dunning was sort of a stale industry based on some, you know, wonky, I don't know, kind of burned out tech stacks. And we thought, what could we do with AI? What could we do with, you know, for example, I love this segment of customers. I call them quiet cancelers. And we started seeing in the data that a lot of significant percentage, five to 10% of people were opening everything, clicking through the emails, the, the payment recovery emails, but they weren't re- responding. And yeah, I, I know they're seeing this form, the form super easy to update your car. You can even use Apple Pay, Google Pay, whatever. It's seamless, right? So we, we had this, this was fun. You know, we had this assumption where maybe they need a little nudge. And so we launched Dunning offers where you can say, hey, look, I know you're opening. Basically, just call them out, right? I know you're seeing this. I know you're using the product. So just update your card. I know it's annoying. Here's 10% off. Here's 30% off the next three months. And that started pushing people over the edge, right? The, the inconvenience of having to do this, they were just going to let the subscription lapse because they just didn't want to do, be, you know, be dealing with it. And, and who does, right? So... Yeah, that's an example of just ambition. And once you unlock that ambition, then then many more problems you can solve based on the knowledge that you've already gathered. And then as you venture deeper into that space, then you start to think, well, 
what other assets do we have like data that we can be more proactive about that we can make more useful and you know just keep going down the rabbit hole makes total sense could you share a very smart decision that you guys made in the early days i think it's having the um the willingness to be open to fundraising and putting ourselves out there i think part of it was that we didn't know if this was going to work at the scale it's working now and maybe there's that part of us that you know we don't want to be told that what we're doing is is you know not good enough right maybe there was like a psychological game but that really <clears throat> forced us to level up and to push ourselves out there take criticism and just plow forward so so the tiny seed decision was a game changer for us and i encourage anyone who whether it's tiny seed or you know whatever other else what do they call them accelerators are out there for you even going through the process can can help you clarify your principles, your strengths, your weaknesses, all that good stuff. That's great. You talk about scale. How big are you guys now? Like what information is public? We're keeping that pretty pretty tight to the the vest right now, but you know, it's it's supporting a full-time team and host of contractors and we're you know, we're reinvesting that stuff in the in the company. So, it's uh yeah, and we're launching a a show called Subscription Heroes here pretty soon. So we're we're definitely we're using it to get out there more and and just tell more people our story and and you know stories of other operators and and founders. That's great. And how about a decision that you made and later on you look back and you're like, "Oh, that wasn't the best decision." I don't think we handled direct sales the best we could have early on. I think we we tried and, and direct sales is the core of our one of the cores of our our business and I think we just didn't know enough about our ideal customer before we jumped into that pond. And as a result, it just processes were all off and the price points weren't correct and and there wasn't a lot of alignment on on ROI there. So we learned a lot and we've re- retold a bunch of things, but yeah, I mean, part of it was too we were realizing that the sales sales would be becoming more important, but we um I don't know. Sometimes our tendency is to just say, "All right, take, rip off the bandaid. Let's go do it. Let's learn how to do it. Learn how to hire for it. Let's just go." And this is one of those cases where we didn't really quite think deeply enough about the ramifications. Makes sense. Let's go deeper into that. What's your take on like sales led versus product led, self on board versus assisted on board? Yeah, I don't necessarily think they are mutually exclusive and. I'd say we we have a hybrid model and I think that there's a a few layers that are in place that are really helping us. So, my theory is that self-serve products work the best when there's the confidence on the behalf of the customer that there's a team behind them, the product willing and able to help them out efficiently, quickly and all that. So, whatever happens, the promise will be fulfilled. And I learned this at Casa where we're dealing with either high net worth individuals used to being kind of just having things done for them and also people with a significant portion of their net worth in crypto. So it might sound the same, but you know, it could be my net worth is $3,000 and I have 2,900 of it in Bitcoin. And so that's a big ask to hand Bitcoin over to us at Casa, right? And so what I learned was I found early on that there would be skepticism at various points of the transfer process and setting up 
the security keys and all these things. And if anyone's listening who's been through that process, it's nerve wracking, it's annoying, it takes a, too long, you know? And so we had a lot of account reps and account management model. And so if there was ever a time in the process where they paused at it or they wanted to learn more, first step was, I'm gonna explain exactly what's happening in this step. So you're adding this key, you're gonna do this, you're gonna do that, then you'll transfer it. Here's why we do it. Here's, if you wanna go even further, here's like the cryptographic foundations of our philosophy. If still you weren't convinced, then we got you on the phone with someone. And that kind of bat phone to a real human who can answer all your questions about, is this gonna work? How's it gonna work? What happens if it doesn't work? really made the self-serve aspect become more trusted over time by by a bigger audience. And so I've applied that same philosophy to our product, where if you want us to just handle it for you, great. We have a process for that. We can write your cancel flows. We can write your, you know, dunning campaigns for you. And they'll just show up in your account and you press the button and you go. All the way back to, I want to do all my own, just here's my credit card, just don't talk to me. So we handle the entire spectrum. And so, you know, our marketing channels have to support that where we have to establish ourselves as trustworthy, that we know what we're talking about, but that we're also willing to talk directly to you if you want. And um, it's been fun. It's been unpredictable and wild and nerve wracking at times, but it's a very human process. And, you know, we're just trying to be as helpful as we can. That's great. Thanks for sharing how you guys do it. And I feel like there's a lot of golden nuggets here for founders. Like you're talking about like, depending who the person is, is how they want to be treated. Maybe they want to do everything by themselves. Maybe they want someone to to help them through the process. And also you talk about how the bigger your brand is, the, the easier your name is. People are going to be more willing to do the self-service. But in the beginning, you want to be helping people so they can trust that someone is there behind the scenes to help them. So a lot of great insights here. So if you could go back in time and meet yourself before we start this company, like just before we start, and you had like about an hour with yourself, what do you tell yourself? Oh, man. Uh, maybe don't start a, a startup with three kids under five. <laughs> don't count on sleeping for the next six months. That's a great question. I think to paraphrase one of the biggest ad campaigns of all time, think different. I would just say think bigger and don't be dogmatic about how things get done because we're human. We bring our past experiences with us, our past biases, and it can kind of shield you from seeing the reality in front of you of what a situation needs. And then it just comes down to, are you willing to do the best thing for that situation as opposed to, you know, working over your, your own hurdles. So yeah, to be as applicable as possible to everyone. That's what I would, I would say. That's great. And what book do you recommend for every SaaS founder and why? If you can locate it, I think getting real by 37 signals is, was written in 2006 and it's a bit dated now, but it's a great blueprint for Everything from the business side to through the product and engineering experience to the launch. And I've never seen it to this day distilled down that way. And it can be applied to enterprise companies all the way down to solo founding companies. It's just so good and so specific while also having a very strong opinion and worldview. So that one is, is my number one. I have two more if that's okay. Insight into it. 
by um, by Taylor and Schroeder. This is the story of basically how the modern product management role was created. So Scott Cook was the founder and CEO of Intuit. They created Quicken, and before that, he was a he was a product. I think a program, no, it was a brand manager, a brand manager for Cisco, you know, like the, the cooking oil. And so P&G basically created the, the, the blueprint for what became product management in tech. And he took those principles and was the one who did that. And so it was applying, you know, ethnographic research to products. He would send teams home with them, with customers to research where the computer was, how they did their work. Really, really cool stuff. And then the final one is Endurance by Alfred Lansing. It's the story of Shackleton and his crew just doing impossible things literally every day. And it's just this reminder that if you're solving hard problems, if you're, if you're surviving, you still need to take time for mental health and, and rewarding yourself. But you know, each team member has a role to play in pulling off something amazing. It's not just one person. So there you go. Awesome. Those are great recommendations. Getting Real is one of my all-time favorites too. I love to look at so good. A 37 signals as like when you think about B2B SaaS products and the way that they work and they come up with shape up, which is how they build their products. Because again, we talk about role model and they're a great role model if you're building a B2B SaaS product. The way they think, the way they simplify stuff. It's just an amazing book. Like you say, it's an old book, but it's still so applicable until nowadays. The other two books you recommend, I never read it before. I'm going to read them. They seem amazing. Thank you very much for coming to the show today, Scott. Uh, my final question is if people want to learn more about you, uh, follow you, what's the best way for them to do? Cool, yeah. I'm at scottherf.com, H-U-R-F-F, like Frank, Twitter slash Scott Herf. And then uh, my company is Churnkey. .co. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time, Scott. Thanks, Phil. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.